Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Rorg turned his fierce eye upon her, and Minea felt her heart begin to quicken, even as her hand went to her dagger. She had intended to plunge it into his throat, but something about him made her hesitate. Plana, is this a Klingon romance novel? Klingons do have what you might call a romantic side. It's a bit more vigorous than most. So the Star Trek novel line, the post-nemesis continuity, has been going for quite a long time. And a very important part of that continuity, and one of my favorite parts of it, has been the Star Trek Voyager series. So I'm Dan Gunther. With me is Bruce Gibson. This is the Positively Trek Book Club. And today we're excited to be talking about a new release, Star Trek Voyager to Lose the Earth. First of all, Bruce, how's it going? I'm doing well. I've been waiting for a couple of years to have this conversation. Yeah, you and everyone else. It's it's been a it's been a bit of a wait, but uh, really excited to talk about this novel, and especially excited, of course, to have the author with us, Kirsten Beyer, uh, basically a, a huge force in Star Trek novels for many years and in Star Trek on television re- in recent years as well. So. Very happy that she's taken the time to sit down to talk with us. So, Kirsten, welcome to Positively Trek. Thank you. It's always good to be here and to talk with you guys. And I apologize about the wait. It was unavoidable. (laughs) But uh, I'm glad we finally got here and we finally got it done. And now we can talk about it. Definitely. Well, we'll we'll start there then, because, yeah, there was a little bit of a wait for this. And I, and I think <laughs> given the circumstances around it, I think no apologies necessary because <laughs> you've been really busy. Yeah. So it, it's been about two and a half years since the last Voyager novel, and that was Architects of Infinity in March of 2018. Wow. So you've been a little busy since then. I have, but I guess I didn't realize it had been that long. Mm. <laughs> no, I didn't either, actually, until I you know, realized it was 2018. It didn't seem that long to me. Mm-hmm. Time's a flying. You have been busy. So, so that being said, though, I mean, because you have been working on the new TV series and things, I'm just curious when you approached writing this book, because now you have a different writing experience. Did oh, yeah. that have any influence or how did that change the way you approach this novel, if at all? I guess, you know, I had a way of writing and a way of thinking about writing that had been very consistent for a very long time. And then I had to start thinking about writing and writing Trek specifically in a new way for a new format. And there was a period of time, but this was really back during Architects of Infinity, where it kind of broke my brain and made it very hard to figure out how to write anything. I almost went through a period where I felt like I had to teach myself all over again how to do this. Um, but by the time I got through Architects of Infinity, I kind of felt back on track. Like I had my voice that is mine for the novels and then, you know, was figuring out how to lend my voice to the vision of the other folks who work on the shows. So really when it came to, to lose the earth, you know, this was a story that I had originally broken and outlined, I guess, five years ago now. Um, as a two-parter. So, and at that point in time, it was just going to be the next two Voyager books. It wasn't going to be the end of all things. So the first thing that happened when I sat down to start working on this was I realized, wow, this is actually going to be the end for a while. 
And that meant certain things about the story were just going to have to be different. Like I couldn't, I couldn't possibly end it the way I had originally planned to end it. There were other things that had to be taken into account. The other thing is that of necessity, it had to be written in little bursts. Like normally I start a novel and I just work straight through for however many, you know, two, three, four months it takes every night doing the same thing. Um, and that you build momentum and that sort of gets you through the process. Here, I could work for maybe a month or six weeks, and then I'd have to set it aside for a month or two. And then I'd have to come back to it. And invariably, every time I came back to it, just things within me had changed or things within the world had changed. And so it sort of necessitated this constant reevaluation of what I was doing and how I was doing it that lasted throughout the whole novel. And that makes everything that much harder to, to, to have to break up the writing process of a book like this over such a long period of time. I mean, ultimately I'm happy with how it turned out. So I guess it's okay, but it's not something I would necessarily wish to do again anytime soon. I think novels for me anyway, are best written, you know, of a piece all at one time, however long that takes without anything else really demanding my creative focus. So with Discovery and Picard, as you're working through that and doing this in pieces, then things slowed down on production because of COVID-19. Were you still writing this novel and did that free you up to really then focus and finish it? I was not, I was almost done when the lockdown started. I had about three weeks left of writing to do. So it didn't really help that much. But the reality is even with the shutdown, you know, I'm, I have been working consistently, so it's not... Um, it's not like I got a big, huge break or something. I've got to imagine with this novel, like more so than other novels, then you're, you're kind of on your own personal journey over the course of writing it much more so than in would usually be the case. How do you mean? Like over, I, I imagine kind of what you were saying about, uh, when you're coming back to it, things for you had changed and that sort of thing. Right. I've got a, like this novel kind of seems to almost represent a larger, arc of your life, if that makes sense. It does. No, it totally does. It totally does. Absolutely. There's a lot that happened to me in the course of those two years. Um, And a lot that happened in the world in the course of those two years and made me feel a lot of things, (laughs) you know, and all that stuff works its way into the books. Like it can't not, you know, Mm. they're not something I can divorce from all of that stuff. They all come from the same place in me. Well, let's uh, jump right into the novel then, because uh, there's some really interesting stuff here. And uh, for me, you know, one of my favorite things with storytelling, especially in Star Trek, is the characters. And I think uh, this book really features some strong character work. Um, Thank you. So let's start with, I guess, at the end of Architects of Infinity, we had kind of a cliffhangery situation. Uh, the starship Galen was seemingly destroyed. Yes. Uh, but in, in this novel, we discover that it was actually transported over 40,000 light years to the edge of the galaxy, uh, cutting them off from the rest of the fleet. I'm going to go ahead here, by the way, and just say we're going to get into spoilers for this novel. There's <laughs> You definitely should read it before you listen to this podcast. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you don't care about spoilers... You know, we're going to spoil the heck out of this book. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Danger. <laughs> Absolutely. I guess for me, the central character, the the character that I was really connecting with throughout this novel was Harry Kim. And he's, of course, on the Galen because of the medical emergency that's been happening with Nancy Conlon. And he kind of takes operational command, basically, when Commander Glenn is incapacitated. Uh, this basically daunting task that Harry Kim has in front of him. How, how did you feel about putting him in that situation? And, and what was kind of the idea behind seeing him stretch his legs in that area? Um, you know, I've had the chance to go deep with everybody else in the sort of main crew over the course of the last, however many books. And um, I guess it's nine. Um, and, I felt like I always knew the day was going to come when I wanted to go deep on a Harry story, but I didn't know when it was going to happen. And this sort of all came together as, oh, right, this is the Harry book. Um, and, you know, in the same way I was excited to, 
to sort of really dig into every single one of the other characters. I was just as excited to go there with him. Um, and, you know, the idea of the reality of the situation that he found himself in just makes it that much more fun because the obstacles are so huge in front of him. You know, for the first at least third of the book, I think it's literally, are we going to die in half an hour, you know, is the problem. And, uh, you know, there, there's just fun to be had there, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I felt that Harry's journey was quite interesting because I think about him as a character is what we see in the TV series. He's the young ensign who, of course, doesn't get promoted in the series. And, but now he's a lieutenant. And now he's in a situation here where he actually steps up and takes command, even though that's not his role necessarily on the gallon. It's, you know, he, right. he steps up. And then right. at the same time, he feels the effects of his decisions, whether right or wrong, especially with Velth. Right. Yeah. And, but, but to be fair, I mean, I had been building this into Harry's character for a while. Right. He and Chakotay had been having conversations several books back about him stepping up and taking more gamma shifts and really kind of being on a command track. And um, and he had been in enough situations where he had had to sort of exercise the same judgment that, you know, a higher level officer would. Um, that I felt that combined with the circumstances he was in, you know, nobody else on that ship had ever been flung however many thousand light years across space and found themselves completely alone and having to begin to deal with that crisis. He just was uniquely well qualified to, um, to handle that. And I felt like without stepping on anybody's toes that the crew he was with would recognize that and would respond to that. I mean, I I wasn't interested in playing out any sort of a real battle for command um, and all of that stuff. I think the closest we got to that was when he finally confronts Captain um, Glenn when she wakes up. And rather than being a struggle, which she feared it might be, um, it just became two people getting to know each other and figuring out how to work together to solve the problem. You know, And there were moments where his experience and his wisdom were more helpful. And there were moments where her experience and her temperament really helped kind of get us to the next place we needed to be. Um, It was a really interesting dynamic to explore, honestly, because these two people had never really worked together before. Um, And they are very, very different, um, but had the same goal at heart and the same desire to see everybody live through this thing. Um, Yeah, it 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 was really fascinating, actually. I'm really glad you brought up that part of the book because I, I really appreciated that scene between the two of them that kind of uh, realization that, yeah, this isn't going to be like a battle of wills or something like that. And then it, Glenn, I think this is the part where she starts to think like, why the heck was this guy an ensign for so long? And mm-hmm. I like that she kind of mentally calls out Janeway for that decision. I love that. <laughs> yeah. and I, but I think there was also a moment where I had Janeway sort of reflecting on, and that came out very organically, the way she had handled the first seven-year mission and how, you know, for better or worse, she had just taken everything on herself. And yeah, we saw a few promotions here and there, but for the most part, everybody kind of maintained their status over those seven years. And I think that has a lot to do with her style as a captain and her as a person. Um, But what's beautiful about this part of the journey is that she's actually grown past that now. You know, by, Mm -hmm. by just stepping up to the next level of command, she's able to see you know, that it's better to actually let other people do their jobs. And, um, and I think had that been her, had that been her mentality early on, you probably would have seen more people promoted, mm-hmm. you know, in the first seven years. It's interesting. That's something I'm noticing coming up a lot in this book, particularly are the experiences of that original seven years in the Delta Quadrant and how they're kind of informing what happens uh, with this mission and we'll get to it, but especially kind of the situation that happens at the end of the novel as well and how that experience has prepared everybody for what's happening now. Like you said, with Kim on the Galen and then with what happens at the end of the novel, I think that's, that's an interesting that we, we get that, that stepping stone, that kind of past knowledge that informs what's happening now. Yeah. But you're always, of course, building 
these things from that experience as well. Like, um, that's the only way any of this ever feels organic to me, is if you can logically see how everything I was before takes me to that, that next place, you know? Um, there were a lot of decisions they could have made at the end in terms of what they were confronted with that as Voyager's crew, I just don't think they would have made. Like, I don't think Kirk's crew or Picard's crew or, you know, the nice folks on Deep Space Nine would necessarily have seen this opportunity and gone, hell yeah, let's go. You know, because mm-hmm. they didn't have in their toolkit the years and years of separation and making it on their own and figuring out how to do stuff without Starfleet that Voyager had. Whereas for people like Janeway and Chakotay, it's kind of a no-brainer. Like, of course we can do this, you know? Um, which is why I could hand them something like that. Whereas I couldn't have done that with another crew, I don't think. Well, they, the whole situation on the Galen, I, I think, is really interesting. And we talked a little bit, like you said, about how, you know, they're five minutes away from catastrophe for mm-hmm. the whole first half of the novel. Mm-hmm. I think the whole situation with Velf was another really interesting one. Yeah. The the kind of terror that yeah. I had while reading his, you know, while he's doing the repairs on the hull and then checking out this mysterious substance. Mm-hmm. I, that whole part, I was absolutely on the edge of my seat throughout <laughs> all of it. And, you know, in the back of my mind, because it's Star Trek, I'm like, is he really gone? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I, there might be something. But I, I think that was all handled really well. And and I, I thought that was uh, really fascinating how this strange alien being had altered him, mm-hmm. altered his DNA and stuff. Mm-hmm. So where did that part of the story, where, where did that come from? The kind of ideas behind what was done to him and, and what he ended up representing? Well, I will tell you that in the <clears throat> earliest versions of this, when this wasn't going to be the last book, in my mind, Velth was actually just going to die. Like this was just a, uh, you know, space is really dangerous. This mission we are on is super dangerous. It's about, that was a moment about setting the stakes for what everybody else was going to be facing. But once it became clear that the real thematic area that I was playing with had more to do with how do we bridge communication gaps, it made sense to me that as hard as we were working on our side to figure out how to communicate with these people, they would be working on their side just as hard. And they would use the tools that they had at their disposal to try to create a bridge of communication in the same way, you know, Harry and Drewer were working to try to break down that language and figure out how to speak to them in their own language. Um, so once I had, once I sort of realized that, it was clear that Valve had to come back and, you know, that that, that, that was the path we were going to have to head down. Yeah, tell us about how that communication with this alien race works and, and tell us about them too. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce their name. The Edromite? <laughs> yes, them. Them, yeah, okay. So, well, I mean, having read my other stories, um, you know, this is a recurring thing. This is something I'm always playing with, this idea of how do you speak to people that do not share your values the shape of your body, the organization of your internal organs, um, just communication um, across distance and divide, however that manifests itself, you know? In this case, the thing that I first hit upon was that this was a species that had evolved over millions and millions of years to a point where we were just unrecognizable to each other. But, you know, the, the thing that I was playing with was, of course, this idea that what would you do with a species that could only speak math? Uh, now, this is terrifying for me because I don't do math hardly <laughs> at all and not very well. So I reached out to uh, a dear friend of mine who is a mathematician and a teacher to say, could I even do this? Like, is this even possible? And he was like, oh, absolutely. And we started to discuss the kinds of terms and how that would all play out. Um, and And he was able to sort of give me an understanding of literally how those people's minds would work. And the most delicious part of it was that on the one hand, you have a species that has evolved to be unbelievably precise in speaking their language. There is literally no room for error in communication, but there are whole aspects of our experience as human beings that are just not part of that language. You know, 
how do you speak of love in math? How do you ask the question why in math? How do you, you know, hopes, dreams, fears, all that stuff, there aren't words for that in their language. And so that was going to be the fun part. How do you, how can both sides begin to see those things in the other that are missing, right? Um, And it's not that we don't understand math, but we certainly don't understand it at the level that they work. And, you know, so everything was going to have to be like super rudimentary. It was, um, it was just, it was just an interesting problem to set before my, before myself and sort of like see how I could work it out and try to solve it. Um, But, uh, but those were the early things. I knew I wanted them to be the species that spoke math. Um, And I knew also, you know, the, the, the whole, the whole beginning of this story back to Architects of Infinity um, was this recurring idea of a species that exists to build bridges. That's all they want to do. That's their goal. And um, because I think on some level, I feel like that's what we all need more than anything right now are not the people who can stand firm on whatever position they have taken, but who are the people who are going to begin to bridge the gaps between us and help us learn to speak to each other again. Um, so, uh, so that was sort of like the beautiful little light living in my heart as I was creating these people all the time is that they, they genuinely are about, you know, just building bridges. That's interesting. I, I like, I like that idea of, like you said, a lot of your past work has involved, uh, exploring how different people communicate with each other. And I was even just thinking back to, uh, and I'm going to butcher the the Latin name, but Civis Pacem Parabellum with the mm-hmm. Pavans, yep. I think yep. that uh, same, same idea. I really, yep. I like those ideas of alien aliens that are yeah. almost impossible to connect to. Yes. And the beauty of the novel form is that you can spend so much more time in the nitty gritty of how that all works, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the whole sequence on the bridge with uh, with the ensign, um, oh Drur. shoot, Drur, Drury yeah. or yeah, Drur, uh, Drur, thanks. Yeah. yeah, and his whole exploring that and the different terms and and all of that. I thought that was really fascinating. I was really into yeah, because that it's part. not just about language; it's it's how no. you communicate, the structure. Right. Yeah, right. And how does that translate into a math problem or a right. mathematical term <laughs> that then we would actually understand each other? Yeah, it was super fun. Absolutely. I'm going to use that with my wife. I'm going to say one plus one <laughs> is the two of us. See? <laughs> you know, but in some ways, too, it's a similar challenge that I faced in writing to Marion, you know, in I guess mm-hmm. it was atonement or acts of contrition. Uh, I think it was acts of contrition where I, I decided to try to write an entire scene between two to speaking in their language and yet somehow still make that comprehensible to the reader. It's just fun. It's just hard, but it's fun. Well, speaking of building bridges between two different experiences, uh, we have Nancy Conlon in this, in this novel. Yeah. And she's a character that I've really come to like over the last few novels. And her journey is really central to what's going on in this novel. She's got this affliction that's causing this, um, kind of degradation and, She's, of course, cut off from the rest of the fleet on the Galen, and they determine that in order to buy herself some time, they need to transfer her consciousness to a holographic body while awaiting treatment. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is something that uh, you reference in the novel has been done before, of course, with Dinara Pell Mm and Voyager. Mm -hmm. And what does this ultimately mean for her character's mental health? And then, of course, uh, the obvious consequences to the relationships with the people around her, especially, of course, Harry Kim. Right. Well, so Nancy has been an incredibly tough character because, I mean, she's literally been through the ringer ever since Atonement. And I I don't like to torture my characters, but, (laughs) you know, there was just the things that kept happening to her kept pushing me to places where I was sort of unsatisfied with the choices that she had to choose from facing any given piece of this. Um, And so what I try to do when I'm writing is to let the characters really just sort of speak to me. And if I start writing something that 
has them do a certain thing just to fulfill a plot purpose, and I find it emotionally unsatisfying, <clears throat> that tells me I'm down the wrong path and I need to rethink this. And so oftentimes, and this was the case with Conlon in this story, like she gets to that moment where the doctor says, well, we can give you a holographic body to buy you some time. It can't be permanent, but this will help us. You know, I think most people would have faced that choice and gone, no, thank you. <laughs> that's that's mm-hmm. not at all something I would be interested in doing. And she immediately, instinctively was like, sure, absolutely. Let's give it a shot. And I spent a long time once she had sort of made that choice for me going, well, why the hell would she do that? I mean, what sense does that make? But the further I got down the road with her, you know, the more I realized that this was someone who had been facing so many difficult things without the ability to control them. So many things happened to her. She was possessed by this alien consciousness. That consciousness damages her body's ability to repair its DNA. Um, She got pregnant. She didn't intend to get pregnant. She wanted to terminate the pregnancy. That choice was taken away from her because of the bleed in her brain. You know, and in the midst of all of this is Harry Kim, who is somebody who she clearly has very strong and deep feelings for, but they sort of skipped the part of the relationship where you really, really get to know each other, not in crisis, And figure out if you really, really want to be together. So I could understand how with someone who is as awesome as Harry has been throughout all of this. And he has been awesome. Like, tell me what you need. We'll get it done. We're in this together. You're not alone. I mean, he has said said and done all the right things. I could see how for someone in her position, she would need that and gravitate toward that and want that. But At some point in time, the bill was going to come due. And this was that moment for her where what she really needed was to be able to consider everything in front of her in a less, in a kind of emotionally detached way. And that's what the experience of being a hologram does for her. Uh, It becomes more of a mathematical equation of, I will consider this. I won't consider that. I can close this door. I don't have to think about that or feel that. And apart from taking her back to the place where she is in the midst of her core competency, where she is at her best doing the thing that she is best at and has always loved to do without the distractions and the fear and the emotions around all of the other stuff, just being there and being able to live there for a minute gives her the clarity to start to look clearly at the other things and go, well, is this really what I want? Now, of course it helps to have somebody like Hugh Cambridge to sort of, point these things out to you, but she was instinctively making choices to get herself to that place where she could somehow begin to reassert control. Um, and so that's, that's what that part of the journey was about. For her. You know, that's the thing about this character that yeah, I, I felt that of her, of quickly going into this situation where she becomes, you know, a hologram mm-hmm. because she's very good and comfortable with technology mm-hmm. that I felt like that was her opportunity to say, I know how this works. I'm comfortable with it. And like you said, it, I can still be myself without actually having to be myself and put mm-hmm. myself in a situation where I can figure out what it is I really need and where I'm going. And yeah. while I'm doing that, I'm working on my passion, which is engineering. Yeah. And through yeah. my passion, I can discover where I really need to be and who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sad, ultimately, that it wasn't with Harry and their child, you know, living happily ever after in that way. But, you know, it was her authentic journey. And I don't, there was literally no other way I could end it for her. You know, I just Mm -hmm. couldn't see her. For a long time, I was trying to write it that way. I was trying to write it with this is the moment where she and Harry really come together and they really, every, they both go, you know, all in and they're going to get through this together. And the more I kept trying to do that in scene work, the more she kept pulling away, you know? And so I just kind of had to honor that and go with it and see where it took me. Well, and the thing I noticed when we got to the last chapter, and of course, as Dan said, we're in spoilers, so I'm going to jump yeah. to the end. But I mean, there's so many different character pairings in this right. in relationships yeah. with O'Donnell and Fife and yeah. Gwen and Patel. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, Paris and, 
and Torres and Seven and Hugh and Saint Saint Catherine and Chicote. Right. And I mean, they're all the relationships for the most part are tied up in a boat and Harry's still alone, except for his child. And Mm -hmm. and I know you keep saying this is the last story, but you know, it's like we don't get that opportunity to see that relationship with Harry and his child then. You know, yeah. I mean, maybe one day, but yeah. I felt sorry for him in a sense because he was alone. He was. And, um, you know, he certainly the relationship between a parent and child is nothing like the relationship between spouses or friends or relatives or, you know, I mean, relatives who are like of the same age, cousins, aunts, uncles, whatever. Um, it's a completely new thing for him. But what I believe a hundred percent in my heart about Harry Kim, given everything I know about him now over all the years of this journey is that he's going to be fine. Like Harry Kim knows how to take on hard stuff and make it work. And the fact that the new relationship in his life didn't end up being a partner or a spouse, but ended up being a child doesn't change the fact that he's already been forever altered. And from the moment he knew that child existed, something deep inside of him was like, yes, I want this. And so, you know, for me, it was a very happy ending for Harry that he now has the opportunity to explore this new dynamic in his life. And maybe he'll find a partner. Maybe he won't. I, I, I de- Like none of that really kind of matters to me. I'm very happy leaving that to the individual imagination of everybody who loves these characters Um, but for me, I found it incredibly hopeful and positive and happy. I don't, one of the things that I'm playing with here is the idea that love is awesome in all of its various forms. And, you know, in each of these relationships, we have different dynamics of loving relationships and they're all equally valid and valuable. You know, they just happen to be specific to those individuals at this moment in time. Well, speaking of uh, of Harry's child, of course, uh, which we've we've brought up here, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Atar Gwyn, the sure. the Helms person of the of Voyager, mm-hmm. and of course she's half Creotian, mm-hmm. and in the experience, her experiences in the previous novel, she undergoes the Finisral and and bonds right. with the uh, I, I wouldn't, I guess not unborn, but the, the, the still embryo. incubating child yeah. of Harry and Nancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this character I think goes to some very personal places during this novel in, in ways that, you know, as, as a character, she's very, uh, I'm not sure what their correct term is. She doesn't tend to deal with deep emotions <laughs> very <laughs> often. Doesn't do that. <laughs> Does not do that until now. Exactly. So mm-hmm. in this novel, you know, she's really confronting these in a way that she hasn't before. I was wondering if there was kind of a particular inspiration for her story and, and where she kind of goes in this story with her relationship with, uh, well, you know, the child for one thing, but also with uh, Devi Patel for another. And when we say well, the child, we're not talking about baby Yoda, just for everybody who's listening. <laughs> Wait, yeah, we are. Wait, what? <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, shoot. This episode comes out on the same day the, the oh, first yeah. episode of the new. Oh, man. Dang it, That's Bruce. bad competition. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, there wasn't a particular inspiration for her. Um, a lot of what ended up playing into that story was sort of my dissatisfaction with and desire to go deeper into the ideas of the Creosians themselves, right? And what that society was really like and how that could have evolved that way and what it means to have a perfect mate and all of that kind of stuff. So um, in some ways she was sort of subject to that greater story need for me. But the more I allowed her to speak and live and feel things, Um, the more it became clear to me that this was somebody who's obviously younger and has not yet begun to realize the deep importance of real relationships. She's been able to sort of skate by 
for most of her life kind of living on the surface, right? She got burned once when she was younger. She made a course correction and she's been perfectly happy with that and living a relatively unexamined life ever since and unknowingly has actually begun to form these deep relationships. You know, I go back to that very first conversation between her and Patel on the shuttle at the very beginning of Architects of Infinity. These guys are really, really good friends. You can't talk to your friend. You know, you can't talk to people who you just have surface relationships the way they talk to each other, right? They've already gotten under each other's skin, but neither of them has really acknowledged that that's the case. And so when the moment came when she knew that Patel was going to die if she didn't do something, and she didn't stop and think for a second, she was ready to throw her career out the window to save that woman's life, that's when I knew there's more to this relationship, you know? And so the joy of this story for me, for her, is, is finding the way to, to force her to face that mirror and to say, look, this is what's really going on here. Get over yourself and, um, you know, and, and live more consciously, live more deeply. You're ready for that. Um, you know, that there's a sort of objective correlative in the bond that she creates with the baby that's now going to be, you know, either really fun or really, really hard, depending on their proximity to one another for the rest of her life. Um, but in a lot of ways, the much more important relationship recognition came with her and Patel, you know, that, uh, and there were, you know, there were moments when I played with the idea of, is this more than friendship? Is this a, you know, um, is this a romantic relationship? Like, what is this? But every time I kept coming back to, no, this is, this is just, these guys are sisters in a way. They're, they're, they are the best of girlfriends. And that's, um, again, yet, yet another kind of relationship that has value in its own right and is certainly worth exploring. Yeah, I, I really appreciated that that kind of illustration of that kind of relationship, especially one that strong. I thought it was really cool. And I, I'm also really thankful that everyone in this fleet has Cambridge because know, right? if there's ever a group that needs counselors, <laughs> right? <it's them. laughs> oh, yep. I did notice that as you're even talking about Gwen, it's a lot of the characters that you write in here, including Patel, and you said about here, and well, I mean, and uh, like um, Nancy, it's just the these characters think almost think twice they just they really do step up and sacrifice themselves for others yeah. you know saving yeah. the crews I, I tend to think of that as part of the hardwiring of starfleet training in yeah. some ways mm -hmm. um and certainly following the examples that their commanding officers set time and again um i just think that that you absorb that in your in your dna in a weird way when this is the life you choose this life of service you know yeah mm-hmm but but everybody's going to confront that reality at their own time and in their own way in their in the course of their career, right? They don't all walk in going, "Hey, yeah, throw me in the can and I'm fodder." Like they, you know, they sort of I think tiptoe toward it until the moment where they have to finally confront that choice. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, the the idea of jumping in head first. I, I remember one scene that really got to me, and we talked a little bit about kind of Nancy's willingness to just immediately transfer into a hologram. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking of the scene where they're kind of going over the physical parameters of the hologram and talking about it. And <laughs> yep. she's just so blasé about it and like, Oh, make me a little taller. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about that. Let me yeah. see you as a blonde. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like this existential horror. Yeah. <laughs> watching yeah. this scene. Yeah. But of course the doctor and Barkley are totally into it because yeah. Barkley's, you know, geeking out about holograms and the doctor doesn't see what's going on. And right. I felt like there was something really dark underlying that. Yeah. There was. <laughs> she is not well, <laughs> fellas, at that point yeah. in the story. She is not well. Yeah. And she's doing everything she can to um, avoid that reality. Well, one little kind of side question I had uh, with regards to this story, because for me, it's been a long time since uh, I read some of the previous novels. So um, I, I did kind of go over the, the immediately previous novel, but going back to kind of the issues with the Krenum mm -hmm. and the Department of Temporal Investigations. So we have um, Agent Dulmer contacting Captain Farkas mm -hmm. saying like, hey, get Janeway in line. We need her to go contact the Krenum and establish diplomatic relations. Why were they so adamant about that? Just out of curiosity. 
I can't tell you that. Oh, I thought it would be something like that. Yeah. yeah. There, the, this was the other hard, cold reality of crafting this novel and having to rethink this novel on the fly as things are evolving and developing elsewhere in our universe. Um, some of the choices that I made would not necessarily have been the exact choice I would have made uh, if, if this were completely disconnected from all other continuity, but it's not. And so um, that was an instance where I needed to defer to the needs of other folks who are working after me and um, give them some room to run uh, with their own stories in a direction. But I needed to, that was something that I needed to lay in um, for them. And there were a couple of other things in the end of the novel that I needed to lay in to set them up. So that's what I did. Interesting. That's very tantalizing. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a team player. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, and I kind of, you know, gathered that because knowing this is the last novel, it's kind of a story thread that's introduced that's not really completed. But I love right. the opportunity it gave you with uh, Farkas and her yeah. relationship and dealing with the DTI. Yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with those guys for sure. Well, and just even <laughs> how she reacts, like she doesn't even always, you know, think that highly of Janeway's decisions, but at the same time <laughs> right. she defends them, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a, she's a complicated lady. I, I, yeah. I love her. I just love her. Definitely. Well, speaking of kind of the end of the novel, we've got this interesting future mission of Voyager that you've outlined, and we kind of hinted at it earlier. But so the Edramaya want to build a bridge of stars beyond the galactic barrier, kind of to the next galaxy over. And it's interesting how you were speaking earlier of how, you know, maybe other Starfleet crews that we've seen wouldn't jump at this chance. Mm -hmm. But of course, the folks on Voyager would. And it's funny because while I was reading it, it was kind of one of those things where I was like, oh, that's really ambitious. But yeah, they wouldn't do that. And then they then they go that direction. And then in in retrospect, I'm like, oh, yeah, wait, of course they would. That's (laughs) what this whole mission is about, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think everybody else would have been like, cool, cool. Let's call Starfleet. We'll take a few months. We'll do some R and D. We'll get a ship out here that is really like there were there were definitely ways to sort of slow play this, but that's one of the things I love about these folks is that they don't always look before they leap, but they're competent enough that and confident enough in themselves that um, I think they saw this opportunity for what it was because I don't think the Edermeyer were going to sit still for another two years. You know what I mean? They were they were doing their thing. Um, and we don't yet have clear enough communication with them that um, they would understand necessarily our reluctance or our reticence. You know, they know a thing can be done. Therefore, we go do it. That's the next thing you do. That's how they think. I have to tell you, though, this is like a favorite part of mine because people sometimes ask me, Bruce, if you were to write your own Star Trek series, like what would you like? And I've always said I would do a series similar to Voyager, but not where Voyager, a ship is thrown somewhere and they want to get home. It's that they want to go far away and they, and they're willing to be away from home for years. And I like to see them go beyond the galactic barrier into another galaxy. And then when I read this, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is what I've been wanting. And I don't know if I'm ever going to get anything out of it, but it's going on. But that's that whole thing of, we want to go there. We're making the decision, not we Mm -hmm. were thrown there and we just have to deal. And I love and, and for for me thematically, that's such a beautiful ending to yes. what began with them being thrown across out of their control. Home is on Voyager. That's that's home. right. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Interestingly enough, though, not for everyone. So I, I thought the choice of Paris and Taurus here mm-hmm. with their kind of well, Paris is kind of the impetus behind this, their decision to kind of sit this one out mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, go home and, and wait for Voyager uh, to tell them all their stories. I thought that was an interesting choice. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit to uh, where, where that idea came from. Um, well, if I'm being 100% honest, that was another one of those things that I needed to do for other folks. Um, I personally think, though, it's 100% defensible. Uh, I think Paris and Torres could have gone either way, depending on which one of the two of them is winning the day. Um, (laughs) But I also, you know, the more I thought about it, 
you know, kind of appreciated looking honestly at their unique circumstances. You know, they're not on a galaxy class ship that has a school and has daycare and has, you know, lots of other kids for their kids to play with. Um, and to be committing to what could be another several years of life like that for their kids at this age, um, I think it's something you do have to think twice about when there are other alternatives. You know what I mean? And I also feel like all of these relationships now are so well-established and well-grounded that it's not like they're never going to see or speak to these folks again. You know, in my imagination, the, the journey that Voyager takes is exciting and dangerous and all kinds of cool stuff happens, but of course they make it home in the end, you know, of course they make it back. And, and that when they do Paris and Torres will pick up with all these people exactly where they left off and continue on. So you know, I've had enough long distance relationships in my life to understand that those work too. And they don't necessarily have to be in each other's space, in each other's faces day in and day out for all of that to remain solid and true and deep and real and rich, you know? Um, and I don't think any of their friends would have looked twice at the idea that, no, we, we're going to, we're going to say, take the kids back and we're going to be with them and we're going to raise them and we're going to you know, give them a little bit of a safer foundation for a while, you know, and it didn't hurt necessarily that they had been through some pretty hairy shit with those kids over the last several mm -hmm. books, you know, um, they had had to confront some really, really hard, scary moments and those should have an impact. They should not just assume that it's always, always going to be okay. Then, then they're not real people to me. And, and it's interesting. I kind of almost see it as a full circle uh, coming back to kind of the the issues that Tom's mother had with their decisions early on, too. Mm -hmm. Like, I've got to imagine that that's got to kind of play into their minds a little bit as well. I think so. But I mean, I think for me, the beauty of that story was that Julia learned. Julia was in a very dark place and very angry. That's true. Yeah. And she was in the wrong there. And it took her son being able to be completely honest with her to sort of get her head straightened out about all of that. So... I don't fear that had they called mom and said, hey, by the way, we'll talk to you in two or three years, she would have been like, no, I'm sending somebody after you. I think she would have been, I think she has reached a place of trust in them and their choices. But obviously, I think she'd be much more thrilled to have the grandkids closer to home. Tell me about the moment when you wrote this last chapter, because you really are wrapping everything up. Mm -hmm. You're putting everybody in a good place. Mm -hmm. You have Janeway and Chakotay getting married. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What was this like for you emotionally? I mean, you know, I had had a great deal of fun in the preceding scenes doing the kind of sort of deep character conversations that I love to do between people. And there was, you know, I think my expectation before I started writing the scene was that something like that would happen again. And the weird thing was that when I got to it, I wasn't feeling that. I was feeling like all the things that needed to have been said character to character had been said. And all of the revelations um, between them were already there on the preceding pages of not only this book, but lots of other books. And really all that was left to be said was, this is how the ceremony went. And this is who was there. And this is, I mean, like... I, I can't tell you why it came out that way, but it did. And when it did, I was incredibly satisfied with it. Um, I, I know there are readers who have so much invested in that relationship. They would have wanted me to squeeze every last moment of contact and dialogue and connection out between those guys. But, but for me, the story was told. It was already done. You know, the moment she said, I have one condition, that was it. <laughs> she had finally reached the point where she was ready to commit, you know, that, and that was this story, right? Chicote had said as far back as, I don't even know, probably protectors that, you know, if she ever wanted to marry, they would marry. Like he didn't care. They were together forever in his heart, moving side by side into the future. And he didn't need it to have any kind of formal whatever. She was the one who kept going back and forth. And once she made the choice, once she saw that for what it was and said, this is what I want, 
that was it. That, that's there's, there's kind of nothing more to say about it other than, you know, what she was wearing and what kind of flowers they were carrying. You know, it just, it just, it was, the story was over for me anyway. Yeah, it was, it was definitely, it felt like a natural, um, progression for these characters, of course, but yeah, like you said, it, it felt like connecting the dots that we kind of knew were already there, I guess, with the previous chapter. That's interesting. And there's also something about not necessarily being in anybody's point of view in that moment. Like every time you do one of these scenes, you have to choose a point of view. And oddly, this was a moment for all of them. And so I kind of had to stay outside any individual's vision of this moment, you know, because you're going to choose Janeway. Are you going to choose Chakotay? Like if you choose Janeway, you got to have Chakotay scene after that. I mean, you can't, you know what I'm saying? Like there's, Mm -hmm. it opens up too many doors. Like this was a moment that was truly a communal experience. And so you can sort of only write that from that objective third, you know, godlike POV, which is jarring because there aren't a whole lot of scenes like that in literally anything else I've ever written. Right. But in this case, I do believe it applied. Well, I'm I'm just glad that we had a nice happy ending here, not just for this book, but for the whole series of books that you did. It was yeah. it was a nice cap mm-hmm. to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I see it as a nice, complicated ending that leaves open lots of tantalizing possibilities. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody Absolutely, else was yeah. going to ever pick up these stories, there's lots of threads for them to play with. Um, if I was ever going to go back to these stories, there's lots, you know, plenty to do. Um, but also if the stories are left to the imagination of the people who love these characters, there's lots to play with there as well. You know, um, the reality of franchises this big and stories like this is that in some ways they can never end. If you're not going to blow up the ship and kill everybody, story is never over. There's always room for more. And so I took them as far as I could and sort of let them go in a way that I was a hundred percent confident that they were ready to face. And that, that to me is the, like the happiest part of it, you know? And I mean, Star Trek is like our mythology, you know, Mm -hmm. for a lot of us. So I, I like the idea of this kind of going out big, like these mythological characters taking on this Herculean task that right. I, I don't know. It, it just really sparks my imagination and, and they could literally go anywhere from here yeah. and in anyone's imagination. Yeah. So yeah. it's really cool. Yeah. What they're not going to do is go home and sit around watching TV and eating bonbons. I mean, like they're just not wired <laughs> that way. Right. Even yeah. Paris and Torres, they're going to do something, <laughs> you know, I think the desire is to constantly see these people living their best lives. And that's, that's where I feel like I left them doing what they do best. Excellent. Here, here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that in mind, um, I I would like to talk a little bit if possible and, and, and as much as we can about the future of Star Trek novels and, you know, understandably, there might be some areas that you can't say a lot about, mm-hmm. but we have been told a few times by various authors that there is a plan mm-hmm. for the post-Nemesis continuity yep. uh, to wrap up or to join the Picard continuity or, or some nebulous mm-hmm. variation thereof. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to any of these plans? And, and we've, we've gotten a little bit of hints, I think, throughout this uh, episode, but uh can you speak to where they, where those plans are and if that's kind of still happening or anything like that? To the best of my knowledge, it is still happening. I do not know the status of any of those projects. Um, what I will say is that it's been in discussion for a very long time because, you know, those of us who have been doing this for years now, you know, we... We understand that for the people who read these stories, they're super important. And it may not be a huge percentage of the entire fan base of Star Trek, but these are the most diehard of diehard fans. And, you know, there are other franchises who have made choices with their tie-in material to sort of disregard that reality in a way that, I found insulting and unhelpful and not at all in the spirit of Star Trek. And so, you know, 
like I said, we've been talking for a long time behind the scenes about the fact that, you know, we wanted these stories to be able to live and have the same kind of reality, air quotes, that any of them have, even, you know, within the meta reality that canon has now caught up with us and is going to do its own thing and is going to, you know, overwrite this area of time that we have all invested so much love and passion and creativity into. So given that we could all see that coming down the road, it just seemed like the logical choice to say, you know, is there a way in universe to have the best of both worlds, you know, to not lose the reality of this thing that we have created, but to also honor the fact that there's a whole new set of stories that are about to be told. And the answer is of course, yes. So why not do it? You know, so that's really where kind of our hearts and our minds were as we started to approach that reality and that moment. And um, I'm personally thrilled with the folks that are, have taken that task upon themselves. And I'm sure they're going to do a fantastic job. Am I allowed to swear on this thing? I'm sorry. <laughs> Is this a family show? Shoot. Oh, yeah. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. You're Kirsten mother. That's what we called you back in the day. It is true. I am indeed. So Kirsten, I mean, I, I, that's great. That, I mean, it's great to hear that the idea of not just abandoning these stories and making them all somehow tie into the universe and have some importance in some way or whatever that may be. The other choice could have been that you could have taken all these post nemesis novels, put them in a box, walk into the writer's room of your series and say, everybody read these novels. And this is where we're starting from. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure they would have taken you up on that. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever been in a TV writer's room? <laughs> I don't think I want to. Any of this works. <laughs> Rightly so. The folks engaged in the in the task now of carrying these stories forward very much want to have their own space to run and to play and to tie them to anything that had come before and the artistic visions of the people who had preceded them. It's just not fair to them, you know. Um, mm. So. It's not that I don't believe for one second that the stories that make up this literary universe aren't fantastic because they are. I love them and I've read the vast majority of them and, you know, I'm very, very close with most of the people who created them. I have I have nothing but the deepest respect for everybody on both sides of this equation, you know. Yeah, it's one of those things that if a a television writer has a fantastic idea that a million people are going to watch, they they can't really be told, well, we can't do that because this happened in a novel or something. Yeah, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. Makes sense, unfortunately, in some cases. Yeah, it does. But I do have to say, I'm, I'm very thankful for the role that you personally have played in the writer's room as kind of the liaison between uh, the the television writers and the novel writing and and not just novels but comics as well the whole mm-hmm. kind of secondary uh aspect of of continuity and i've got to imagine that's a very challenging role as well yeah it is it, there's no question about it um and it's just the nature of the beast because you know <clears throat> books and comics comics less so but books need a lot of lead time and the thing is that while that lead time is happening this other creative thing is happening and it is in constant flux and constant motion. Um, you know, I think in the past, um, I understand the sort of choice to just disconnect and to say, look, guys doing the books, do the best you can. Here's everything we can tell you, just do the best you can. Um, but for me, those stories are never as rich and satisfying as the kinds of stories we've been free to tell over the last 15 years. So, to maintain that level of depth and, you know, connectivity and all of that kind of stuff literally requires somebody who stands in both worlds. And so from the moment this started with discovery, I was like, of course I'll do that. Are you kidding me? Like what could be easier? Well, now I know how dumb that choice was, but at the same time, I don't regret it because for me, it means that the novels remain as rich and deep and satisfying as we can possibly make them. And if it means I have to, you know, work some extra really long days and nights, that's what it means. But, you know, I started out in the novel verse. These are my first fans. These are, these are the people who 
I fell in love with and who fell in love with my stories. And I mean, it's, it goes beyond sort of owing them a debt. We are a family. We are a community. We all love Star Trek in a certain way. And there's no way for me to not honor that as much as I can in whatever work I'm doing. So like, I, I just couldn't imagine cutting everybody loose and saying, ah, let's see how it goes, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, it's hard. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of work to build these stories from the ground up, but it's joyful work, you know, and I get to spend, still spend time with other creative people who um, share my vision of Star Trek and who are brilliant writers in their own right. So, you know, it's, it's, um, good problem to have, let's say. Well, I, I have to say with, with regards to this novel, uh, it's an incredible finish to a story that's been going on for a very long time and I highly enjoyed it. And okay. anybody out there, if you're still listening to this and, and haven't read this yet, I, I question your choices, but <laughs> go buy it <laughs> because it's a good one. Yes, Thank absolutely. You. I, I mean, I, I love the book. I've loved all your Voyager novels. I mean, it's just sad in some respect that I know this is the end for now, at least for, now. for these. So, um, yeah. None but of us know what the future holds. That's true. And we can always there go always back. There always are possibilities, Spock right. says, right? That's right? Absolutely. And you can always go back and reread them, which I, what we've done before. We've done, we've mm -hmm. gone back to some of your earlier novels on uh, when we were on Literary Treks. So we caught up. So every novel has been reviewed on that show. Mm -hmm. So we've had that opportunity and mm -hmm. it's always, I always like doing rereads because you discover something new. Yeah. I discover something. Definitely. New. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, with, uh, with that said, is there anything that you're working on? I guess, obviously we've got season two of Star Trek Picard coming at some point mm -hmm. and Star Trek discovery season three is on right now. Mm -hmm. I know you have, uh, at, at least one writing credit this season coming mm -hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Uh, with an, it's, it's an episode with a title I'm really curious about. I might ask you after <laughs> we're done recording. <laughs> yes, after we're uh, done recording. Please. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, is there anything else that you've got coming down the pike that uh, that we should be talking about? Uh, not at the moment. Um, nothing more, I don't think, has been announced. Um, all I can really say is that um, the folks at my day job keep me really, really, really busy. So... Um, I am, I am well taken care of <laughs> in terms of making sure I stay occupied for now. Yeah. But Excellent. what I can say is that, you know, for the foreseeable future, in addition to whatever work I'm doing on whatever shows, I am going to continue as the liaison between all of the tie-in material. And, you know, I have other folks helping me out with that now as well. But, um, you know, I'm going to remain involved in this way for the foreseeable future. Good. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Well, really excited to see what that, uh, what that world has in store for us. Cause you know, there's some really exciting stuff happening in the Star Trek universe that you're involved in and, and that there is lots of opportunity for tie-ins mm -hmm. with as well. Yes. So. Mm -hmm. so real quick question, Fa one of your favorite moments from lower decks. One of my favorite. Oh my God. Okay. So I think it's in the second episode where the energy creature comes on board and uh, um, yes. Yeah. Okay, so, so here's the behind the scenes part you guys don't know. Uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, getting my master's in acting from UCLA, one of my classmates, one of the 13 of us was a guy named Fred Tattashore. Um, he is actually my daughter's godfather. And oh, uh, wow. we have remained, yeah, super, super close friends um, throughout all of the years since school. And, um, and yeah, I mean, in addition to playing, um, I think Shax is the character's name. Um, he mm -hmm. also does, and I can always tell because it's Freddie, a lot of, and he was the voice of that particular energy creature. And I thought he just did it so brilliantly. Um, so that is like my little personal squee, like, you know, oh, that's Freddie. <laughs> <And it> was, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, if uh, I, I guess you don't have a huge uh, social media presence, I probably. I don't. I never um, did, and it's worse now. And I apologize. For <laughs> you, you know, you're probably the smartest one of all of us. Yes, I've been you thinking are. lately that you know this whole social media thing's really not what it's cracked up to be. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. So, um, yeah, it did. There, all I know for sure is that if I spent any time on it at all, 
I would spend way too much time on it. And the, just the hours do not exist in the day. Well, there's a Twitter um, handle for what? Star Trek writers for the writer room. Who, who's the one? And they're for the writer's tweets? room on discovery. Yeah. On discovery. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who's doing yeah. those? Do you know? Or is it just they random with people? I don't know who's doing it now. I know who started it <laughs> uh, and I know who was doing it for a while, but they're not there anymore. So okay. it may Ooh. just be Michelle and her assistant doing it now. I'm not sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure as always. And I really, truly do hope that we get another chance to talk to you on the show uh, about some future project, uh, maybe maybe a comic at some point, but uh, we'd love to have you on again, if at all possible. And uh, we Absolutely. look forward to that day. <laughs> no, I, would, I am always happy to be here talking about the things that I am allowed to talk about at any given time. And um, you guys are, are very, very dear to me. And um, absolutely anytime awesome well thank you so much Mm -hmm. and it was a real pleasure (laughs) for me too perfect well uh if you want to tweet to the show you can find us at positively trek on twitter we also have an email address positively trek at gmail.com you can find me on twitter at kurtrats that's k-e-r-t-r-a-t-s and on youtube.com slash kurtrats productions and bruce and you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and I'll be on a future episode in December on the 602 Club talking about The Mandalorian Season 2. Ooh, excellent. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and until next time, stay positive. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.